Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jess Harith, uh, Stick Figurine Wine. We're at her home in Portland. It's August 31st, 2020. Jess, thanks so much for joining us today. I should have asked if you want to be Jess or Jessica. I go by Jess. Okay, I good. always introduce myself as Jessica, and then I go to Jess immediately Perfect. to confuse people. <laughs> so Jess, it is. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, first question, the most important for kind of our purposes today, is why wine? Why wine? Um, I don't know. I fell into it by accident, I think. Uh, I was about 22, just finished college, was trying to figure out what to do with my life and was traveling around New Zealand. I knew nothing about wine, but as a young 22-year-old does, I went on a wine tour and uh, it was in Hawke's Bay. I knew nothing. I didn't know the difference between Merlot or Syrah or Viognier or Cabernet Sauvignon. Literally, I didn't even know the color differences. I didn't drink wine. I didn't really drink much at all. Mm-hmm. But I was just so fascinated. Um, I think I was scared to be out of college and to stop learning. And I didn't know what my career direction was going to be. And I suddenly found this thing that had so much opportunity and so much to learn um, and so much depth and history. And I was hooked. I just, Mm -hmm. from that day on, I started studying and tasting and learning and reading. And it also fit really well into my background in college. Um, I had been a French major, I had lived in France several times, and I just loved everything in that culture, the food, and for some reason the wine just never clicked. I think it was really inaccessible, and since I didn't drink it, it never, you know, it would, when I was living in France in college, I would buy like a Cote de Rhone because I lived in Lyon, but I didn't understand what it meant to drink it. I only knew that it was local, and it was often garbage, and I just knew I didn't like it. And it turns out when you spend like a Euro 50, it's probably not gonna be good. But I didn't know that at the time either. I was just so naive to everything in wine. Um, so from there, I was working in restaurants and started to focus my work in restaurants to higher end restaurants where I could learn about wine, learn about food and wine pairing, and actually utilize the fact that I was really interested in this also in my job. Mm-hmm. And basically everything went from there. I was. Um, Uh, I was in New Zealand at the time and then I was working in Australia and then moved back to the States and worked in California um, and eventually moved to Portland, which Oregon was home the whole time I'd gone to the University of Oregon. So Mm -hmm. it was kind of coming back. Um, I didn't move to Portland for wine. I moved to Portland to just, I'd always wanted to live here. Um, So it was just coming kind of back to the city I always knew would be home. Um, Once in Portland, I continued to work in wine uh, by working in restaurants where I could focus on wine programs and gain more knowledge. Um, And then I moved back to France because I was just really hadn't gotten that out of my system yet. And I kind of was at this point in my life where I didn't know if I was going to go get a master's degree in French or something related to French and maybe go down a teaching path or if I was going to continue and really try and take wine seriously, not just be a server, kind of Mm -hmm. intrigued with the wine list, but do something real in it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I moved to France to work as a French or English teaching assistant in high school. Um, And the irony was they placed me in this really rural part of Champagne where there was no Champagne production. (laughs) And I was like, thanks. I really was hoping (laughs) to learn more about wine. And I'm literally in the place where there is no wine made. Um, but it actually turned out really beneficial because I was really close to the Aube, which was up and coming for champagne production, and I was really close to Dijon, so I had mm-hmm. access to Burgundy and the Jura. And so basically I spent my days teaching students how to speak English, and I spent the rest of my time going to wine regions and doing vineyard tours and studying like a mad person um, and drinking when I could afford it, which unfortunately wasn't that often because it's on a very low stipend. <laughs> Um, But what I did learn after about a day of teaching was that that was not what I was destined to do, but the wine I loved. Mm -hmm. So um, I spent the eight months in France going through that and came back to Portland and I was like, all right, wine it is. And Mm -hmm. so that's when I really started taking everything I'd learned in restaurants seriously and formally studying wine. Mm -hmm. So I did... um, a sommelier certification program through classes with International Sommelier Guild 
and graduated with my sommelier diploma um, and I started managing in restaurants rather than just serving which I think was a really critical step to being able to take it more seriously because then you you know I wasn't actually managing the wine program yet but I was able to work more seriously mm -hmm. with the wine director mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, after gosh I don't know a year and a half or so maybe a year of managing I was I took over the wine program so I became wine director this was all at Olympia Provisions um, I had a couple other part-time jobs prior going into management at Olympia Provisions but once I was on as a manager there I went full-time with them mm -hmm. um, and so yeah I just continued to manage the wine program and as I think the longer you stay in a place, the more opportunities come up because I went from a floor manager to the general manager and uh, wine director and then eventually became the operations director and then as the company grew, um, continued to grow with it. So we went mm -hmm. from overseeing one restaurant to overseeing five restaurants and all of their events programming, which, and we were, yeah, which all was great until everything shut down. <laughs> it's been a different year, but, um, and then, so that was kind of my wine career. I. I think that my love of France uh, from my childhood and my college years translated into like a natural affinity for European wines and European wine styles and traditions and history. Um, because the entire time, well, I loved everything the Valley had to offer. My primary focus was on traditional European wines. Um, French wines came really naturally and then Italian wines, German wines, mm -hmm. Spanish wines. Uh, think also it's that little escapist tendency in me to want to be able to use my love of those wines as a reason to go back and travel and actually see the vineyards in person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that my love for American wines started to really come full force with more winemakers going back to traditional styles, you know, like mm -hmm. the New California movement, Oregon wineries doing more experimental styles, working with more traditional styles, um, unique grapes. That really, for me, cemented that we have a lot of opportunity in Oregon beyond just what we knew to be classic. And there's nothing wrong with the classic wines. I absolutely love them. But I think variety, as they say, is the spice of life. Um, and so as I saw more winemakers doing, you know, grafting vineyards or planting vineyards to different varieties, doing more natural styles of wine, small projects where wineries weren't, you know, trying to be a large portfolio distributed nationally, just a small operation made by hand. Mm -hmm. um, that's to me when the Oregon wine industry really, really got super interesting. So back up a little bit before we get to the next step here. I'm, I'm curious about, you mentioned kind of being hooked from the start and, and, and intrigued by the history and the culture of wine. Tell me about, as you got into more formal education of wine, what you found that was, that kept you intrigued, that kept you kind of wanting to learn more. What was, what was it about wine that kept you wanting to learn more? And at what point did you feel like it was something you wanted to, just wanted to do? I mean, you kind of mentioned in France that was like what you wanted to do. What point does that become like a career path? Um. It's hard to say at what point it became a career path, but I knew the thing that kept me with wine was that it never really ended. Every time I learned something, I was so excited to have learned it. And then there was something right behind it that was new to learn and it was endless. Every time I you know, looked up a variety, I found 10 new varieties. Every time I looked up a region, I found 10 new regions. Every time you look into winemaking practices, you find 10 other winemaking practices. And so I think it was the endlessness and depth. Um, and then the history too, it's, it's so fascinating to think back to generations and generations and generations and millennia of making wine. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of taking it seriously as a career path, I think it's only once I started to see real opportunities as a career in wine that I thought I could do it more than just a side project or a passion or a hobby. Um, once I started to you know, understand that there are people with careers who direct wine programs, train staff, curate selections, and also that it was an easy, not easy, but I had access to it because mm -hmm. I had a lot of um, restaurant knowledge. I, you know, by the time I started managing in restaurants, I'd already been working in restaurants for about seven years, so it felt like a very easy thing mm -hmm. to kind of slide into. I'm curious, uh, at that point, uh, tell me about, 
the the management of wine lists, bu building wine lists, building being a selector, being a psalm. Mm -hmm. uh, how how did you go? How do you go about it? What what is it to you? How do you build a, a good wine list? And what is it you're looking for when you're when you're building one? Um, first and foremost, I feel like a wine list should tell a story about the restaurant that you're curating the wine selections for. If they don't match the cuisine and the narrative of the restaurant's identity, then they don't have a place on the list. I was fortunate that Olympia Provisions was based in European traditions in terms of recipe development. The charcuterie we were producing was all very traditional um, and very non-interventional in terms of, you know, there's not a lot of additives to make these tart flavors. It's just kind of, it's not hands-off because it actually has to be very hands-on to make sure nothing goes wrong. But <laughs> it's not as disruptive to the flavors of fermentation as you would find in maybe a more traditional tangy American version of salami. Um, and so being able to take all of that, his, uh, like them being rooted in so much tradition allowed me to then look at wines that were also rooted in tradition, mm -hmm. which is exciting because then you have so many regions in Europe that one, have a charcuterie tradition that you can also match, but two, have a huge wine tradition. And so using that as the basis of the list and then looking to other regions on the West Coast or producers on the West Coast who are kind of emulating that in their own manner. So rather than having the whole world of wine open to you, it creates a focus. You know, I'm not working with South American wines. I'm not working with Chilean wines, not because they're not great, but because they don't fit the narrative of our identity. Mm -hmm. um, and it really helps you focus and hone in on what matches and makes sense and then create a story to tell the customers why those wines are there. Mm -hmm. um, and also for the staff to have a focus and a direction when they're selling the wines and where to learn and, and put their time in. Mm -hmm. For me, a lot of it was like, where are there charcuterie traditions in Europe and the ones that we're inspired by or recipes are derived from? And then what wines are traditional with those? And then from there, what wines are we also making in our own region that fit that narrative? Mm -hmm. When it comes to, to hone that down even further to actually select a wine, mm -hmm. what is it you're looking for first and foremost? Is it the wine itself? Is it the person behind the wine? What is, what is the, the key factor for you, determining what if yeah. it's a list or not? The quality is the first factor for me. Um, if a wine isn't of good quality, it doesn't deserve a place on the list. And to me, quality is relative. I fully am like, I am okay with a certain level of flaw in a natural wine if it's expressing what the wine intends itself to be. Um, at the same time, I'm a huge fan of like very clean, very precise wines. And so the, the quality being expressed and the intended expression is really important. Mm -hmm. um, but then also, I think the story behind it, um, who's making it, the farming practices, the vinification practices, most of our wines since before it was even like a trending topic were natural, even if they were the looser version of natural where maybe, you know, sulfur was used for stability, which is, you know, not natural in everyone's version of natural wine these days, but um, really allowing the wine to express itself without too much intervention as to what nature intended it to be. You talked about your role at Olympia kind of growing and expanding as you stayed there and as, of course, Olympia Provisions grew and took off mm -hmm. itself. Uh, so I'm curious about um, the evolution of it and, and how um, how sort of intertwined it was with the industry. How, at what point did, did Oregon wine, the Oregon wine industry become more of a part of what you were doing there? Um, Oregon wine industry was always a part of our list. We always tried to honor what was going on here and what was going on in Europe. Obviously, even if our charcuterie was inspired by Europe and, and our founder's time spent learning charcuterie in Europe, we are an American charcuterie company and the product we're making is from American pork and we're you know in Portland. Um, and so we always had a good segment of the list for what we considered to be some of the best Oregon winemakers, you know, traditional winemakers like Irie, alongside more up and coming winemakers. I remember Teutonic wines when we first started felt like a very natural match. He was starting up, we were starting up. Um, but I think there was more room to experiment with more Oregon winemakers as time went on and more Oregon winemakers came out who were maybe looking for those m more old world styles or looking for unique grapes that are grown in the Loire Valley or in the Valley d'Ost or, you know, different European regions. Um, so it just gave more access and opportunities to really embrace the local wine scene as, as more winemakers honestly started experimenting. I think that the, from 2006, 
2007 to 2010, there was this time in my wine career where it felt like I had known what was going on in Oregon wine because the winemakers were doing similar things. There were pockets of people doing unique things, but it wasn't quite as explosive. And then once you saw Teutonic coming to the front and bow and arrow and other people who are just not afraid to kind of cut their own path, we saw an explosion of so many producers doing things on even like a very small scale mm -hmm. that were mm -hmm. inspiring and fascinating and felt like a really natural fit to what we do at Olympia Provisions. Do you find most of the time that, you, that wines are coming to you to be selected or do you find that you're ever, that you were seeking out wines from people that you heard about that you thought would be a good, good fit? It's both for sure. Um, a lot of wines are introduced to me by, you know, distributors and the reps that I have there. A lot of wines I hear about from friends. I see them um, in New York City. For local wines, it's usually more natural. I meet someone who makes the wine and then I want to try the wine. For European wines, it's often I, well, prior to not traveling, <laughs> I would be exposed to the wine through someone in Europe, um, be it on Instagram or at a restaurant in New York City, and then start looking for where those might be available in Portland. Um, but we also are really fortunate. We have amazing importers and distributors locally who bring a lot of incredibly diverse and delicious wines to the States. So we talked about off camera about sort of your, the, the, the next step in your journey of, of actually making wine. So tell us, tell, take me through the decision to make wine and, and sort of your first steps in, in the process as a winemaker. The, the decision to make wine was completely an accident. Um, I bought a house in 2015 with my partner in Portland and it has right here, this tiny little Pinot Noir vineyard um, <laughs> that had been planted in 89 and 90 by the prior owner. And when I moved in, it was kind of funny and awesome that there was this vineyard, but it was like, well, okay, I guess I'm gonna make wine now. It was never really what I thought I wanted to do. I loved it, I helped harvest, I'd helped winemaking with friends, but it was always like a fun side project to do on my days off. It was never <laughs> something I thought I could do. Um, but I wasn't about to let the grapes go to waste, so I decided that year that I would try and make wine. Um, but I also was smart enough to know that the quality of this vineyard was a complete unknown, and I should probably have some sort of control point to understand what was going on. So Brienne Day at Day Wine sold me a tiny, tiny bit of Johan Pinot that she was going to be producing that year so that I could have a control point. So I fermented them both in the exact same manner. Um, made them in carboy, very, very rudimentary. And the resulting wine from the vineyard at my house was pretty much garbage. Like there was not really anything good about it, to be honest. <laughs> um, and had I stopped there and never made the Johan Pinot, I probably would have been like, well, clearly I, like to be a winemaker, I need professional training and I have a career as a psalm and wine director and restaurant manager, so I'm not gonna go down that path. But what the Johan Pinot told me I made was that like I could make good, clean wine with very rudimentary equipment. The house came with a distemmer, it came with a press, came with about 15 carboys. Um, so that's, that's what I started with. And it was kind of just fun at first. Like I would give the bottles of Johan to my friends and they were like, oh, this is really delicious. Um, and I would hide the bottles of wine that I made from this vineyard and be like, no, nothing. I didn't make anything there. Don't, let's not talk about that. Um, and so in 2016, the next year, I did the same thing again. Um, same Johan Pinot that I bought off Brienne. I bought a little bit of a larger quantity because I knew that I could at least potentially make something decent and experimented with super small lots of fruit or juice that other winemakers gave me, um, Sterling sold me some Sauvignon Blanc that he was getting in. Uh, Bobby at Mellenmeyer gave me some Chardonnay juice that he wasn't gonna turn into a sparkling project and was just gonna dump. So I had these really tiny lots of things to try and ferment. And again, I was really just experimenting, trying to understand more about the process um, and why this vineyard was producing garbage while those vineyards were delicious. Um, and then it just kept going. So. I produced again in 2017, super small lots, and all along I was just really excited to learn something new. I spent so many hours asking questions, researching online, reading scholarly articles about winemaking. Um, 
But it didn't intend to be anything aside from this fun thing mm -hmm. that made sense mm -hmm. with what I did. But in 2017, after everything was done and wrapped up, I looked at all of these wines over the three years of production that I'd accumulated and I was like, what am I going to do with all of this shit? Like, I can only drink so much. <laughs> My partner can only drink so much. I can only give so much wine, homemade wine away before people are like, oh God, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> like, not inviting her over again. <laughs> and also people, you know, not every wine I made was good. I dumped a lot of things out, but there were wines I made that I was really proud of. Um, and I wanted to have the opportunity as a wine director to share those with the public because that's also what I love doing. I love telling the stories of wines. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew if I was going to continue to produce, I needed to not just drink them, sell them, or sit on them until they went bad. I needed, I needed to sell them. So um, I applied to, I started getting the process of getting a permit going. Um, after doing some research and I determined that maybe, just maybe, I have a large daylight basement below my house that was not really being used for much aside from me fermenting, that I could get it turned into a legal winery. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was definitely like a pipe dream. I was like, I'm sure at some point someone's going to tell me no. And I was like, but whatever, what do I have to lose? So I started doing the application process knowing full well at some point someone was going to shut me down. And it went through all the way. The only part that ever got stopped was uh, the city zoning commission said that I can't actually sell wine that I produce from my own vineyard. It's against rules. And I was like, well, that's fine because it sucks anyway. So it's really not what I was looking to do. That vineyard's there for me to learn how to farm, but I don't know what other purpose it serves. Um, and so that I started the process in 2018. I, didn't, it was at the end, it was like right when harvest was starting in 2018. So I knew everything I made that year was gonna just be once again for home use purposes. And I actually didn't make them up very much cause I was just overwhelmed with what was already sitting with no, no use. Um, and so I finally got the permit. I think the TTB approvals came in in March. It took a while because of the government shutdown for a month. And I'm sure I did some paperwork wrong. I had to correct at some point. Um, but I finally had my OLCC permit and everything ready to operate on July 1st of 2019. So last year was my first real year and I produced it all here. Um, it's definitely micro scale wine production. I produced about 150 cases. But when you consider everything's done by hand and I don't have forklifts or anything that, you know, lifts things up for you, it's reasonable and it's going to grow this year. So we'll see. I keep being like, I'll, I'm just going to keep producing more until either there's not enough space or I'm just not strong enough to do it. <laughs> How many tons can I produce before I tire out? <laughs> or realize that I have to move to a real winery with forklifts and stuff like that, which I really don't want to do. This is, you know, part of what I love is that it's a project I can do at home. I go to work, you know, 50 hours a week. I don't really want to add more time outside my home to that. Mm -hmm. And it's a really nice place to produce wine. Mm -hmm. When you started making wine, I'm curious, was there anything that surprised you about the process? Obviously, you were familiar with it from an outsider's perspective, but was there anything about the intimate day-to-day -day details of it that surprised you? Um, two things. One, everyone told me if I was going to make wine, you know, pretty naturally, uh, really very naturally, I do use sulfur in minimal quantities to stabilize and keep things clean. But, but everyone told me, just keep your equipment really, really clean. Make sure everything's washed, sanitized, scrubbed, and, and never skip that step. And um, I think what I was surprised to learn is that as long as you spend about 90% of your time cleaning, you'll have fairly cl clean wines as a result. And so what I didn't realize is that 90% yeah, of winemaking is actually just cleaning shit. But strangely, I kind of like it. I've always loved cleaning in a weird way um, mostly because it's satisfying to have things clean and it's good to kind of get your hands dirty and do the hard work sometimes so yeah <laughs> clean clean a lot was there anything else that surprised you that I could do it I mean honestly aside from research um, reading and helping other friends at harvest I didn't know what I was doing. And I think if I was trying to do winemaking where I was adjusting yeast levels or adding tannin or doing any of that process, I probably would have 
not been able to do it, but because I knew from the beginning that if I couldn't make wine that tasted good without those processes, then I wasn't gonna make it at all. That was never a question. If I couldn't do it with the fruit being the good thing, creating a delicious product, then I was simply gonna go back to not doing winemaking. Um, so, I mean, I guess it's not surprising because people have been making good wine in that manner for thousands of years, but I think there's also entire universities training people how to do it. And so it's like, oh, well, there are two worlds that exist. You know, I can do this and it's never gonna say that I'm the quality of top winemakers by any means, but I can make a product that's pleasurable then that people can enjoy, mm -hmm. which is super exciting. Like if you can have something that makes people feel good about their lives, that's really all there is to it. How did your sort of training and knowledge as a psalm and as a and as a wine buyer sort of inform your the, the making process for you? Um, I had known a lot about winemaking processes just because I clearly am a geek that studies and reads. I I was homeschooled for most of my upbringing until my junior year of high school, and so I think the fact that I from a very young age had to pretty much teach myself everything. I didn't have the tools of being taught as most people would, um, it created this natural world where for me to learn, you go about it on your own and you figure it out on your own because that's most of my learning experience. Um, I just got lost in the question. Uh, sort of your experience as a psalm and, oh, and yeah. how, it, how it informed your winemaking. So I'd already spent a ton of time nerding out, reading things, researching, learning what people do, talking to them about what they do and how they do it. And so I already knew a lot more than an average person who maybe just drank it and decided they wanted to go into it. And I also had a large framework of style references. You know, I knew what wines tasted like with micro-oxygenation from Bordeaux versus very old cask-aged wines from the Jura that, you know, were already 10 years old and had been aged in cask for a long time. So I already had a large gamut of understanding how different winemaking decisions affects the end product and also how climate affects the end product. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was really beneficial to know going into it because I understood a lot better, you know, what a rainy September might do to the end product than someone who maybe was getting into it for the first time and had only lived in one climate and mm -hmm. knew that climate's wines. Mm -hmm. So you talked about obviously wanting to make it as naturally as possible and, and, and have the fruit be the, the, the show, mm -hmm. be, be the star. I'm curious if you had any other kind of stylistic decisions in mind or thoughts in mind of what you wanted the end product to be based on wines you had tasted or places you'd been. Um, I wouldn't say it's based on places I've been, but on wines I've tasted, I definitely have an affinity for finesse and acid in wines. Um, think working with charcuterie that really needs both of those qualities to match it, I naturally have gravitated towards those styles of wines. Um, and also being willing to embrace a certain level of experimentation because everything I'm doing is so not traditional. There is no sense in trying to pretend that what I'm doing is anything but what it is, which is a micro wine project mm -hmm. in a basement from, you know, a psalm with no formal wine training experience. Um, so allowing experimentation is important, but also being smart about it. I don't want to experiment for experiment's sake. Well, I did that actually. I did that before I was going to release anything <laughs> properly and I dumped those out and I learned that sometimes experimentation is not the right route. <laughs> but yeah, um, I don't know, both tradition and experimentation. I think it's really important. Uh, never getting stagnant. You know, if we only relied on tradition, we would never grow and evolve. Uh, but if we only relied on experimentation, we would lose traditions that inform us. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm really nice balance of the two. Mm -hmm. I have last year for 2019, I made a really nice barrel aged um, Pinot Noir from Dundee Hills. And it's as traditional as I could imagine a wine I would ever make. And at the same time, I also made a Syrah from Snake River AVA in Eastern Oregon. And it's one of the only vineyards in Eastern Oregon growing any fruit in that AVA. And so that's where you see like the tradition mm -hmm. and the experimentation mm -hmm. side by side. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned you you just the label just just got started last year. Uh, tell me about the decision behind the sort of the name and the, and the label. The decision behind the name um, happened when I was joking with my family. It was Christmas and I was trying to open bottle after bottle of my homemade swill, being like, "Drink it, please help." <laughs> 
and they were like, this is really good. You should make it. And I was like, I don't know, like, or you should sell it. And I was like, I don't know. It's really fun. And, but like, you guys have to drink more because seriously, like you've seen my basement now, we got to get this shit out. Um, but yeah, it, I was joking that if I were to really do it, it couldn't be anything that takes itself too seriously. And I was trying to say, you know, like a, a stick figure of a winemaker is what I would be, but I had had a few glasses and I said a stick figurine um, of a winemaker. And it kind of fit because it's something a little bit more elegant than a completely rudimentary drawing, but it's still very, very rudimentary at the same time. <laughs> but then when I was doing the label design, I didn't want it to be so simple. I didn't want to oversimplify what it was. Um, wine is inherently complex, whether or not it's made in a large scale facility or a tiny basement winery. Um, and I also had been an art school dropout. I had left my, I was doing a French degree and I left the art part behind so I could graduate early. And so it was also an opportunity for me to kind of go back into art and and use that creative passion that had kind of fallen to the wayside. So doing the label design and the paintings for and the, the whole project felt like it really came full circle. And so I wanted to make sure that it wasn't so whimsical that no one would take me seriously, but also that it wasn't too serious because ultimately wine is meant to be enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And so it can be taken very seriously, but if it's not enjoyed and accessible and someone can drink it in a beautiful backyard and put a smile on their face, then I don't know if it really has a purpose. <laughs> I'm noticing a lot of balance for you between sort of tradition and kind of, uh, like you say, experimentation or kind of self-seriousness and lack of self-seriousness. It's mm -hmm. an interesting balance to try to make with a new label. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> what also comes from my background, I've always, even in wine, you know, balancing traditional iconic winemakers alongside some of like the new up and comers. I think about, you know, the Domaine Tompiers on my list side by side with uh, some Loire Valley upstart by like a Somme who just moved from Paris and started a winery and how those two fit side by side in the story of wine. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess in a weird way, I'm trying to like be that balance mm -hmm. while I make wine. I'm bounce back to that for just a second because I'm curious about that. As you as you build those kind of wine lists, where you have that kind of dichotomy between very traditional and very upstart, how did you find the reaction from people buying wine from you? Did you find there were a lot of a lot of buyers for both, a lot of customers interested in both kinds of wine? Um, I think initially selling Oregon wine was the easiest thing in the world um, because in you know 2000. 10 when I started Olympia Provisions, it was safe and comfortable and everyone knew it and wanted it. Um, by the time 10 years later where we've arrived is selling Oregon wine is still very easy, but it's strangely the unique varietals that sell the easiest. I remember putting on um, the Maloof Skin Contact of Rich Demeanor by the Glass a couple summers ago and it outsold our Oregon Pinot by the Glass and I was just like, what has happened? <laughs> is so different than it used to be. I mean, it was exciting and it was awesome. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, our own staff being so excited about what's going on and wanting to introduce people to these new things and being comfortable with the process of explaining what a skin contact reverse demeanor is and why they should get excited about it with charcuterie. Um, but, it's, and I think that has been part of I guess it came to fruition because the natural wine conversation and the experimentation in wine became much more mainstream and people got more comfortable with seeing wine as something that could be diverse. But initially in the process, before people necessarily wanted to experiment or venture outside of their comfort zone or leave the iconic uh, wines to try the new experimental wines, it was just a lot of making people comfortable and having both side by side makes it accessible because you're not pigeonholing yourself into one category. Mm -hmm. You're saying, here's this beautiful Oregon Pinot from Irie. We love it for all of these reasons. And if you're feeling like you're comfortable with that wine and want something a little more fun, have you heard of the Jura? <laughs> so as you became an official, as you, as Dick Figurine became an official thing, was there a, a vision for you behind the label? Did you have a goal in mind or a, or a kind of an end point in mind, something you wanted to reach? 
Um, my endpoint, I'm just at the beginning, I'll say that, um, obviously, but <laughs> <laughs> the endpoint I want to reach is um, I'm very interested in wine regions that have not been very well discovered or discovered at all yet. And so the Syrah I made last year, um, I'm going to continue to work with that vineyard. Travis Cook is the farmer for all of that fruit, and he has a winery called Copper Belt mm -hmm. outside of Baker City. And it's actually a crazy story. I love Eastern Oregon more than anything. Um, and I was out there uh, a couple years back driving down the road, and there was an A-board sign that said Copper Belt Wines. And I was like, there is a winery here? What? Like, how is this possible? Like one of my favorite places in the world and there's a winery. I knew about Snake River, but that was like Idaho and it was farther mm -hmm, south mm -hmm, and it wasn't mm -hmm. interesting to me. Um, and so the following year, I saw that he had some fruit to sell and that's how I ended up making it. Um, the really fitting thing about it is that my whole long-term dream, even prior to knowing he had fruit there, was to actually start a vineyard in the Wallowas. So it's still the goal. One day when I'm retired from living in the city, <laughs> sort of vineyard in Wallowa County, either in Imnaha or on the um, Grand Ronde River near Troy, mm. a little lower elevation mm -hmm. where they could probably ripen. And so, I mean, that just, I think we only know what we know in terms of the places we grow grapes and make wine from. And I think that this is a very large world and there's a lot to explore and like that's really exciting. And mostly what's exciting is I don't want to move there to grow grapes. I want to move there, but I also think I can grow grapes. Mm -hmm. And that opportunity is super exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, you know, exploring the Columbia Gorge, I have some Pinot Gris I got from along the Columbia Gorge, but it technically falls in the Willamette Valley AVA uh, because it's just outside of Troutdale. And so finding these little unique pockets where people are growing grapes and doing something different is really, really exciting to me, um, I think again, there's that learning process that can be achieved. Like, what does that vineyard have to say? If anything at all, maybe it doesn't have anything to say and someone can move on and plant the vineyard elsewhere. But. So if you were to, if you're, if you're planting a, a vineyard in the Wallawas, what, uh, what would you plant? What, what, what's your idea for what would ripen there? What would you make? It depends on where. Um, I do think in Wallawa County, sort of like, the elevation is quite high, so if you're going into Wallawa proper, I think at like 3,000 feet, by the time you get to Joseph, you're at 4,500 feet. So it is really, really high elevation. Maybe some sparkling wine projects could be had there, but down in the two valleys, um, the Grand Ronde River Valley around Troy and the Amnaha Valley farther east, it is lower elevation and they have that benefit of those hot summer days mm -hmm. that I think would help ripening. Variety-wise, I think what I would like to do is plant a bunch of different things and see what thrives and then graft over to like the things that are best. In my imaginary world, in Minaha, for example, I can see a lot of similarities to like various parts of northern Spain, um, not like Galicia so much, but inland like the Duero areas where it's very rocky and craggy. Um, the soils are very, very poor out there and it's just grassland and I think, you know, something that can grow really well mm -hmm. in basalt. Um, but I also just think that you don't know until you know, so trying a bunch of different things and seeing what seems to really work in that place and then focus on that is probably the smartest way to arrive at the best, hmm. best one. But it would be really great. I mean, I also, I'm, I'm in love with what, you know, Nate Reddy is doing at HiU and the idea of just doing intermixed field blends. I think that is a really rare and holistic way of looking at grape growing and winemaking and so doing something like that would mm -hmm. also be a really cool opportunity. So as you're getting started and as you're looking for grapes now, what, what is it you're, how are you seeking them out? Is it uh, like, like just happen to drive by Copper Belt and hearing about them <laughs> or are there other spots you're particularly targeting or, or varieties you're targeting at this point? At this point, um, working with Travis on more fruit that he has is one of the huge goals as much as I can be making wine from that part of Eastern Oregon, because not all of Eastern Oregon is interesting to me. I'm not really interested in like the Milton Free Water District. I'm more interested in, you know, the Wallawa Mountain area and that vineyard happens to be at the base on the other side of the Wallawa. So it's kind of like you're there. <laughs> um, so continuing to work with fruit as he has it available, that's definitely what I'm doing this year. And then also um, I'm gonna continue to work with this vineyard outside of Troutdale because it produced a very beautiful skin contact Pinot Gris last year. 
Um, working with fruit from the gorge and then a little bit from the Willamette Valley. And in terms of sourcing, Travis, like that came about in a very natural, random way, but mostly it's knowing friends, people who are growing, people who are making wine, they know, you know, a vineyard who has some extra fruit. So mm -hmm. different sources, but yeah, usually it's just word of mouth. So I heard you, I've seen you describe the definition of natural wine as, as a punk rock approach to, to winemaking. I'm, I'm curious if you could tell a little bit about what, what, what you mean by that. So, it might not be as relevant now as it was five years ago, as it's become more mainstream. But I think about um, in 1995, when I was into Riot Girl music and being my little version of a mid-90s punk rock girl, and what it meant to find fringe music made by women for women that had a voice of empowerment, a voice of opportunity, and it didn't need to be distributed or made by any mainstream label. It was simply there for the market that could find it. Um, and that's how I felt natural wine started. It was simply there for the people that it made sense for, and it was simply a conversation for the people that it made sense for, but it didn't need to compete with or be part of the mainstream even. I think as it became embraced by mainstream media and you know Vogue and Forbes magazine talking about it, it's maybe a little bit different, but then at the same time, some of the Riot Girl bands did become mainstream later on. So, um, but what it really does is it gives the opportunity to people who maybe don't have a voice in more mainstream outlets to have a voice and to have a place. I think if I had thought about going into winemaking in you know 2008, I absolutely would have not have because it wouldn't have felt like there was a world for me in winemaking. It would have felt a little bit more polished, a little bit more corporate, a little bit more meant to be this like proper glossy career and a little less to be like a passion project, something homespun, something like very made by hand. Um, I think I've always like loved handcrafted, small production type stuff. And so once I saw a world in wine that was much more focused on that, it felt much more accessible and I, that's where it's like, is punk rock the right word? I don't know. Everything kind of gets, uh, everything changes meaning over time, mm -hmm. but. Mm -hmm. So you have a interesting perspective on wine from a lot of different angles as a, as a psalm, as a buyer, as a manager, now as a maker uh, and, and a grower. I'm, 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 Grower. <laughs> this is my learning project. <laughs> learning project. <laughs> I'll grow more than this one day. <laughs> I'm curious what you find now from this looking back, looking at it from this angle now, what is what inspires you most about wine? What is it that, that still at this point is, is inspirational to you and keeps you excited and interested in it? I think it's still learning. Um, before, well, most of the learning was focused around wine regions and varieties and styles. It's now learning about production and varieties and actually growing those varieties in regions. I think we have so much to learn in Oregon about the varietal opportunities that we have fit for different regions. And it's so exciting when I see people talking about their Trousseau plantings or their Chenin Blanc plantings and that the consumer side has opened themselves up so much to those opportunities to really dive into what the wine world means in this really broad and vast framework. We don't know the best varieties for any region until we try all of them. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of those learning opportunities are super exciting. Mm -hmm. And also just being able to engage with people um, about wine is still really fun. Mm -hmm. I miss, you know, talking to tables about wine or our staff about wine, but that'll come back. Mm -hmm. Learning how to do wine tastings with staff and COVID is not really an easy thing. <laughs> well, it's not happening at all. But. <laughs> We'll get back to that in just a second, but I'm I'm curious about the other the other aspect of wine. Now that you you have a product of your own and you're and you have to sell it, I'm curious about taking your own wine to market now after so many years of, of being on the other side of it. Yeah. Uh, what's what did it feel like when you had wine to sell? Um, terrifying. Uh, I I'm hopeful and I think that I'm my biggest critic because I've been tasting wine professionally for so many years and being very critical about it. Um, when I taste my own wine, I think that my natural inclination is to dismiss it as not good enough. I hope because other people tell me it's good and I can actually, I, what I have to do is take my buyer's mind, sorry, I have to take my winemaker's mind outside of the product and say, if I, as a buyer was brought this wine by someone, what would my assessment be? Because it's really hard to take myself 
out of it. And once I do that, I can actually evaluate it. Like, would I put this on my list and mm -hmm. be proud to ask the staff to sell it? And if I can say yes to that, then I will release it and I will sell it. If I can't say yes to that, then it will go down the drain. But having the confidence to get to that point mm -hmm. took a minute. And it took me giving a lot of bottles to friends being like, would you drink this? Is this good? Is this actually good? Am I insane? Am I actually insane for doing this? Um, but I think that's also just, you know, that natural insecurity is probably normal when people are just starting out and that it gets easier over time. And it certainly gets easier, you know. I released my rosé in June and having friends buy a couple bottles was really exciting, but having them buy more bottles later was when I was like, oh wow, like they didn't just buy it once, they bought it again, mm -hmm. and they wouldn't do that if they didn't like it. <laughs> Have you had an interaction yet with someone outside of, so someone you didn't know, uh, either positively or negatively, that sort of, that sort of made you feel like, I'm a winemaker now, I've got, I've got wine to sell, this is what I'm gonna have to deal with. Have you had anything like that where you've met someone new who, who had a, a strong reaction to your wine? Um, not yet, because I had all of these plans to have a release party around my first wine release and kind of get that. But because I released my first wine during a lockdown, <laughs> I had so I mean, I sold wine to people I didn't know, and it was really exciting to see, you know, people sending me messages that I'd never met asking to buy my wine and getting a positive response. But it wasn't the level of engagement that I would have preferred. My initial plan was to, you know, throw a small party and invite the public and pour free tastes and give out charcuterie. Um, but that'll happen one year. <laughs> I was like, do I release it? I was like, well, I have to release it. I'm not just going to sit on it. And mm -hmm. who knows, you know, how long it's going to be. So. Mm -hmm. I just decided to quietly release it and go from there. But it also was a super small scale release. So once I have something that's available in a larger quantity, I might be able to assess it more, but mm -hmm. it sold out pretty fast, mm -hmm. so. Well, that's good. <laughs> well, when you're making really small lots, I think it's easy. <laughs> uh, so we've obviously talked about COVID a couple of times now and the, the effects it's had. I'm, I'm curious, um, Beyond what we've talked about already, are there any other impacts it's had on your sort of wine life? Uh, and, and, and has it affected your vision of the future for Oregon wine or for yourself at all? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, my wine purchasing power as a wine director has been more than halved because we have so few customers actually coming into our restaurant. We were fortunate enough to start a small like local delivery program that includes wines, um, but it's just completely changed the way I interact with wine. I sell wine, I converse with the public with wine, my staff with wine. So yeah, it's completely upheaved. Um, I think the benefit I'm seeing, at least in Oregon, and I don't know how it is in other markets, is that while people are not out in public as much, they still really want to support small projects. And I think that's why even when I released my wine in a lockdown, I still had people messaging me wanting delivery to their house of the wine because they're still really wanting to support the economy. They're just doing it in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think for small winemakers, there's still a lot of hope that, you know, no matter what the economy and what the reality of where they're going to drink it, there are buyers who want their product. I think it's a lot scarier for restaurants right now who have lost a lot of their clientele, not because the clients don't love them, but because they're not willing to eat out. And that's 100% understandable. But, you know, right now it's maybe somewhat okay because they can dine out outside. But once fall and winter comes and all of those options end, it's who knows what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I mean, obviously that has repercussions for the distributors and the whole network of who can survive with less sales. but. People are still looking to have access to it. So I think people mm -hmm. getting creative and, and bringing their wines to people through different means. You know, we're doing more retail sales through restaurants than we used to do. And hopefully people will not tire of buying products in different ways, you know, eating food for takeout mm -hmm. and all of that stuff so that the market can uphold itself until this is behind us. Mm -hmm. What do you see for the restaurant scene in Portland going forward from, from your perspective? I mean, there's gonna be a lot of closures. There is absolutely no way around that the closures we've already seen in the last six months are just the beginning. Um, but, you know, like the old Phoenix rising from the ash thing, we'll see a lot of new openings too. My only hope is that 
some of the old guards and I, you know, Olympia Provisions included and Nostrana and a lot of these really Castagna rest, great restaurants that have existed for years can make it through so that when we come out of this, it's not just new restaurants that we're able to survive, but like long time cherished restaurants that really have a great part of Portland's culinary history are also able to make it through. Cause it's always exciting to have a new restaurant to try or a new place to go, but it's also really important to be able to like support restaurants that have been in it for a long time. Mm -hmm. So hoping, hoping that they come out positively from this. But I also think dining habits will be changed, you know? So I can't say how yet, but takeout is gonna be a lot more normal for a lot of years. Yeah, absolutely. Another case of balance for UIC with uh, kind of established restaurants, new restaurants, pulling through together. Mm -hmm. I, it's definitely a, definitely a theme here. I enjoy this. Yeah, no, I guess they're really, yeah, I've never realized how much that balance carries through in all of the things that I value. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a little bit earlier about um, your kind of end goal of, of, of land, owning land or planning a vineyard uh, outside of the outside of the, the, the beaten path. Uh, what else do you see as you look ahead for yourself and, and for Stick Figurine? Um, my long-term goal is to make enough wine and be able to sell it direct to customer or wholesale channels that I'm able to primarily focus on winemaking. I don't ever see it as being a large project, but if I can find the balance where I'm able to produce just enough that I can work, you know, maybe part-time in my job instead of full-time. It's really challenging to work a full 50-hour work week and then deliver wines to people's houses on weekends or do that, come home, process fruit and make wine until midnight, wake up, punch down, go to work. It gets really tiring. Um, and I've only done it for one year, so I can't imagine what it feel like in a couple of years. So my goal is to find that right balance where I have enough um, income from winemaking projects and other projects that I want to do alongside of it. I have plans. I do like I make beauty products like um, lotions and face creams and face scrubs and to sort of marry that I'm going to be making a grapeseed facial scrub from the spent grape seeds, doing face muds from the spent grape skin. So finding other outlets of mm -hmm. creative projects, things I can make um, to help fund that. I think that finding revenue generating opportunities outside of just like the normal nine to five work grind is really fascinating and i think that the market is more hungry for that mm -hmm. now than ever while we're seeing the world kind of be upheaved and upended and um finding the time to do those type of creative projects is really important we'll get there one day <laughs> i mean i have time but one day it will not be just like the few free hours on the weekends it'll be hopefully more time <laughs> And pottery too. That's my one thing. I don't know how to do pottery, but I really want to learn it. And when I have time, I will start making glasses to drink wine. <laughs> Another thing to learn. It's all Another theme. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. If there's only more time in a day and I had the energy of a 15 year old. <laughs> if you can, you can make, you can make your own casks too. If you make, if you, if you yeah. get big enough pottery. For can, sure. Yeah, do the, just the give, Beckham. Just the, giving you more work to do. Yeah, no, it sounds awesome. <laughs> if I had time, I would do all of these things. Plus, there's this garden behind here. I don't know if you've noticed. It's not tiny. <laughs> Especially considering only two of us live here. <laughs> Is there a um, uh, something else you're looking forward to, to making or trying with, with your brand? Is there another variety you want to try or a, a style you want to try that you haven't gotten to yet? Um, I haven't tried Carbonic. I really want to do that. Um, and I did do 100% whole cluster uh, Pinot Noir prior to me making wines for release, and I want to make one for release. So those two sort of versions of whole cluster I'm really, really fascinated about. Um, particularly for whole cluster, really extended maceration, you know, not just three weeks, but like three months. So I don't think that's something that I'll do this year, but definitely in the next few years. And then, um, access to unique grape varieties. They're pretty sought after right now, but being able to get my hands on something like Trousseau or Chenin Blanc would be really magical. Mm -hmm. So hopefully one day. So tell me about your um, sort of perspective on the Oregon wine industry right now. What, what's changed since you've been aware of it, what it looks like now uh, versus like your kind of first impressions of it and, and sort of where you see the industry heading in the future. Um, I think that the industry has opened up 
a lot since I first got familiar with it. Um, I think it's gone from being really excited to show California and France what it can do with their traditions to being really excited to show the world what it can do with their traditions. And so I think that's going to continue. We're going to see a lot more plantings of, you know, it started with maybe things like Gamay and Riesling that were being experimented with, but Trousseau and Chenin and all of these cool European varieties that are kind of off the cuff and under the radar. Um, I think we'll see it a lot more. I mean, we already are seeing it a lot more, and so I think that's going to only continue to grow. And then um, more small wineries. I mean, there's tons of small wineries coming up every day, but I think that as the market starts to embrace these small wineries, they'll only become more embraced. People get really excited about kind of finding something unique and feeling like they're supporting something like really from a person, not from a company. Um, mm -hmm. And that will only continue to grow. It definitely fits very well with the ethos of sort of Oregon, <laughs> Portland in particular. Um, but we're also gonna see a lot more conglomerates come in, buy vineyards, mass produce wines from the Willamette Valley or Southern Oregon, um, and buy out wineries, because unfortunately it's not super accessible to purchase land, especially with an existing vineyard. So it's going to be a weird balance of who owns the fruit versus mm -hmm. who makes the wine. I mean, we already are seeing that most of these small wineries are not always owning their vineyards. They're simply producing the fruit. So mm. we'll also probably see more creative middle grounds where people lease land and farm the fruit, but they kind of own the fruit in that respect. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and I think we'll see more people try and take on those farming projects, get more involved and not just buy fruit off of other farmers to make, but actually farm the fruit themselves mm -hmm. on a small scale though, you know, not like hectares and hectares or acres and acres, but you know, eight acres, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. things that people can do by hand and not with a team or maybe a team of friends, <laughs> unpaid help. Yeah. That's, a, that's the story of the Oregon wine industry right there is teams of friends, Yeah. unpaid help. Um, I'm I'm curious. Uh, oh, no, I lost my lost my train of thought. What was I going to ask? <clears throat> mm. In terms of from your from your other perspective, from your wine buying perspective, assuming restaurants are open again and you're and you're buying wines again, do you see the trend of what you're buying for stores continuing that way as well? In terms of smaller, more experimental, less known brands, is that excitement, enthusiasm here to stay? I think so. Um, I think right now what I'm seeing is even with the small scale that we've reopened, I'm I'm wanting to support like my friends in winemaking more than ever. And we, while we've always really balanced like traditional European wines and local wines, I'm working more with Oregon wine than I ever have, mostly because the last thing I want to see is these people lose their livelihoods right now and everything feels so uncertain that if I know I can help them get through, then I know I'm doing something good for mm -hmm. our own industry. Mm -hmm. And as much as I want to like uphold the industry in France and everything, I know that their own culture is doing that as well for their people. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the one biggest change. I would like the world to stabilize where I feel like I can bring the balance back of having everything side by side. But like it's the first time at Olympia Provisions where all of our glass pours are American, um, just simply because we're trying to support, you know, mm. our actual friends who live few, you know, streets down. Mm -hmm. If someone were to ask you about getting into the Oregon wine industry, what would your words of wisdom to them be? Um, absolutely, do it and and make some friends because everyone here is so nice and so helpful and. Um, yeah, like every, it's just a really, really friendly industry to be. Are we Canadian here? <laughs> so work in wine industry, Canadian. Not everyone's nice. I'm sure there's some assholes out there, but certainly all of the winemakers that I feel like I've looked up to locally um, have just been the best people. Mm -hmm. Okay, last question for you. I'm gonna get a little philosophical for you. And you've talked about this a little bit earlier, but I kind of want you to expand on it. What do you think is the role of wine in society? I think the role of wine in society is to bring people together and to give them joy. Like there, if there's not joy in having dinner around a table with wine and a fire late into the night and shooting the shit and enjoying each other's company, then 
but then it's over. <laughs> and we can still do that. We just do it with masks on. <laughs> but yeah, really, I mean, joy is the surface level part in bringing people together and the fact that there can be history um, behind it and learning and process is really, really fascinating. But the end result is it, it should put a put smile on people's face. Like it. Yeah, there's no purpose if there's no joy. All the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here that we should have covered? I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. Excellent. I feel like I rambled enough. It's more <laughs> than I'm used to talking these days. <laughs> it's long interviews this summer, as you can imagine. People are like, oh my gosh, an outlet. I can talk to someone. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's definitely the most I've talked about myself in a while. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us for, for uh, uh, hospitality here in this beautiful space and uh, sharing your stories. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thanks for coming. I thank really you appreciate so much. your time. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.